Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, joined, as always, by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and now the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio, Doug Glanville. Doug, just spent the weekend in Philadelphia, your old stomping grounds, calling Phillies, Brewers. And uh, since we got such great response last week when you were telling stories about your trip to San Diego, I think we should do this again. So, Doug, what was the highlight of your trip to beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? (laughs) Well, I mean, Jay, I, I realized I hadn't been here in a minute. Really? Um, I came, I taught a class at Penn about five years ago, and the final lecture was held at Citizens Bank Park. The Phillies were gracious enough to give us, like, the press room. So we held, like, a mock, you know, post-game interview, and uh, Bonnie Clark and Rob Thomas, who, uh, uh, yeah. Rob Brooks, I mean, who is at the Phillies. Yeah, so that was... The la- I think that might have been the last time, but so it was. It was a homecoming in many ways, and uh, coming to Philly, going to college here, I kind of walked around, and at the park, it didn't change. So one really fun thing that happened, and I, I kind of forgot coming in, but my roommate in 1992, when I played in Winston Salem, was Ozzy Timmons, uh, University of Tampa phenom, and uh, Ozzy was great. You know, so we. Used to, I used to be the cook for the house. I'd make dinner and stuff for everybody. We had uh, three of us. And Ozzy, we roomed various other times as well. So that was 30 years ago, <laughs> which yeah. is shocking. And, uh, and sure enough, um, he's the hitting coach of the Milwaukee Brewers. They have a co-coaching setup. And it was, I took a picture, and then I had it side-by-side with Ozzy back 30 years ago when we were playing a game, I think at Durham with the Durham Bulls. <laughs> and uh, it was so cool to think. So I went to breakfast with him and kind of caught up to hear about the players of today and you know, kind of his take since he's kind of my, my generation. So to see someone who was your roommate and then 30 years later, you know, just be in the game, you know, we feel really fortunate for starters, but also it's a, 
it's a cool time warp. Uh, but the Phillies always offer so many people. I was just amazed at how many people from the Phillies organization still work there. <laughs> I mean, you know, Debbie yep. Nacido and Rob Holiday, and I mean, they're still there. It's 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 cool how they they always had this family vibe. Even the ownership group was, was a group of families, and um, and to see that the you know they stay and clubhouse attendance, everybody is still there. So I, I enjoyed that to, to catch up. Uh, I also ran into Mickey Morandini, who is now the um, one of the ambassadors of the Phillies. As well, you got you got to give the trivia and question: Who was traded for Doug Lanville? <laughs> in December twenty third, nineteen ninety seven. Right, Mickey you Morandini. are. You got that one right. We should have a Doug Lanville trivia segment yeah. where you answer questions about yourself. That would go well. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd get a few wrong though. I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, you know, Mickey Moe was there, and I took a picture with him. And so we were traded 25 years ago, uh, two days before Christmas. And it was a really tough time for me because my grandfather had passed the night before. So it was it was the first time you know ever in my life at the point where our family was broken up. My parent, my mom, and my brother were in North Carolina to kind of help with the funeral arrangements, uh, or they were already down there seeing his last days. And he actually passed away in the same hospital as Buck Leonard did. Um, you know, Buck is a, Rale- a Rocky Mount product as well, uh, North Carolina. So, um, and then, so we were separated and the Phillies, you know, the, I think no, the Cubs called and said, hey, you've been traded. And uh, I was, you know, I was kind of upset because, I, you know, the loyalty in me being a Phillies fan, Gary Maddox, these players stayed, you know, I know they didn't have the rights <laughs> we had, <laughs> but they stayed in the same place. And just the idea of, even though I was going to the Phillies, it was, you know, it was tough in the conditions with my, my family, but also the fact that I wouldn't finish where I started and I never got that shot to be like the everyday center fielder. So that was um, that was a little hard, but then, of course, it was a homecoming. And so I was traded for Mickey Morandini, and then I ended up playing for him like the next year. He, got, he came back. Playing with him. So playing with him. Playing with him, yeah, I should say, for uh, the next year. So it was cool to take that shot. And, and one of the you know, when I was starting to smell the roses as my career waned, I started getting autographed bats from people, and I got one from from Mickey. I just thought that would, you know, be important to commemorate. So that was typical. And and there's one guy from the University of Pennsylvania in the big leagues right now named Jake Cousins. That's right. Uh, and he pitches for the f- pitches for the Brewers. So I took a shot with him. So this year it is. I'm really trying to commemorate and record. You know, take some photos because I really feel like it's a family reunion every every week. I'm just seeing people that I, I realized that I've known for 30 plus years in this game. And, it, you know, it's kind of time to, you know, take a picture and I'm sending, I'm treating my, my wife like Instagram. I'm sending her pictures like, her, right, who's this? And sending her stuff. And, <laughs> and uh, the kids are really enjoying it. So yeah, it was just another week where I'm all the more thankful for being in this game. Yeah. And you've been posting these photos, uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, look at that side by side photo of you and Ozzy Timmons, this weekend, 30 years ago, you looked exactly the same. I, I, I think it's probably a good thing you did not become a coach. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> no. that looks like they can wear on you a little bit. <laughs> anyway, speak, speaking of guys who played when you played, we had something special happen this weekend involving a guy who was playing when you were playing. Um, it's one of the greatest right-handed hitters we've ever watched play baseball. Miguel Cabrera got his 3,000th hit. The radio call of this moment from our friend Dan Dickerson in Detroit was so magical, we need to hear it. So let's do that now. 
Upright, relaxed stance, tucks the left shoulder in as he cocks the bat over the right. The 1-1, ground ball. Base hit in the right! 3,000 for Miguel Cabrera! Raises his arms. Iglesias the first to hug him. The Tigers dug out empties as they charge over to first base and let the hug dispensing begin. Oh, what an incredible journey from a skinny 15-year-old discovered on the dusty fields of Morakai to an icon in Motown. So good. I'm such an admirer of people like Dan Dickerson who can on a ra- like on a radio call who can transport you to the moment to that place and also to the place where it all began on the dusty fields of Marikai. And I also appreciate that he gave us such a good segue to mention that in a few minutes, we'll get a chance to talk to Dave Dombrowski, uh, not just about that Phillies team he's running now, but about Miggy, who was the Marlins, uh, Dave was the Marlins GM when they discovered Miguel Cabrera on the dusty fields of Marakai. Beautiful. (laughs) Later, Dave, of course, was the man who traded for Miguel Cabrera and brought him to Detroit. So he will have fantastic perspective on this. But first, Doug, why don't you and I talk a little bit about Miggy and about this feat? And I want to give you a chance to talk about this guy, because as I mentioned, you were still playing when he reached the big leagues. So you've seen it from the beginning. And I'm just curious, what do you think has made Miguel Cabrera such an incredible and gifted hitter? So, I mean, so many. Well, for starters, when he started, you could see it right out of the gate. I mean, yeah. he was 20, but he, he really looked like an experienced veteran that was already a batting title winner. I mean, he just had that kind of calm. And the maturity of his approach. He discovered right field way before, you know, it was fashionable, I guess. You know, you kind of say, well, you're going to be a power hitter. You got to pull the ball. And he was like, no, you know, the hits are over here, (laughs) spreading out the defense. And um, and his ability to just put the barrel to the ball was second to none. And and the thing that was so tough, I mean, first of all, it was was extremely fitting that that's how his 3,000 hit was, the kind of carve-out, inside-out stroke the other way. Uh, That that sort of sums up his his approach. And yet still can turn on the ball when he needs to because he also was a genius. I mean, he knew what was coming. He could read pictures. He understood patterns and and had a sixth sense for it all. But the the thing, I, I think about a Jeter type, but, you know, and I say that only because as a defender, Miguel Cabrera was that with power. And he had it, what he created was an element of disguise. So just imagine being a center fielder and having a view of Cabrera hitting. And you see a fastball set up inside. And you're like, okay, he's set up. I'm going to cheat a little bit towards left center. He's probably going to pull this ball. And then he carves it down the right field line. You're like, okay, what is he doing right now? So then you <laughs> see the catcher set up outside for a pitch, a hard pitch away. You're like, okay, I'm going to cheat towards right center. He's going to go the other way. And then he hooks it to left center field. <laughs> so, you know, all the all the elements of anticipation as a defender was completely neutralized with guys like 
Miguel Cabrera because he could hit any pitch of any speed in any location, anywhere <laughs> on the field, anywhere. That's right. Line to line. And so there was, you couldn't anticipate anything. And, and no, so imagine pitching to this guy. You're like, well, where do I throw him? I, I don't know where he's going to hit the ball. So he was indefensible. And, and the thing is, like, even the numbers, like I remember researching games for Cabrera hitting, and I just I go through baseball reference line by line. This guy hit 300 everywhere, every situation. It was like runners in scoring position with two outs. Left-handed pitcher who has an allergy to the grass, he's 300 hitter. On a night game where the moon is a crescent shape, I mean, everything was 300, everything. And I was like, this guy is unbelievable. So that, that just told you the consistent dominance. And then, by the way, when he hit the two home runs off of Mariano Rivera, like towards the end of Rivera's career, still dominant, I was like, that's it. That, that was it. Like, it was already proven enough. And then you make Rivera look like he's throwing wiffle ball as a four-year-old against you in, the, in your driveway. I mean, come on. <laughs> so I, I just always, and I've talked to him a lot of times, and I remember once asking him when he was hurt and he was coming back and the, the Tigers were at Wrigley. And I was like, okay, t- come on, man. Tell me, tell me the truth. Like, they say you're on the shelf with no baseball activities for three. Is, that, is this true? He's like, nah, man, I'm in the cage. Of course I'm sneaking in the cage. <laughs> you know I never stop hitting. You know, he just, but um, just listening to him mature and then talk to players. I just, I just have to remark about his calm. I mean, calm. He, he, he defined it. There was, hitters are often so anxious and like get themselves out and the pitchers play off of that. There was no like sense of like, I, I can't catch up to this fastball. <laughs> and I watched it day in, day out at so many levels. And, and so, yes, they, they say greatest right-handed hitter, but I'm going to go down and say he's one of the greatest hitters, period, all, of all time. I mean, he just, he just is that good. And, you know, it's great to see him get the milestone. I'm sure if he, he's just going to run out of time because of his body, but he's a guy who would have had like 5,000. If he just kept going, he would just keep hitting. You know, <laughs> hand-eye just off the charts. Yeah, I, you know, I wrote about uh, his place in history in my Numbers That Define Baseball piece uh, in The Athletic last week. And I mean, just a couple things. Um, 3,000 hits, 500 homers, 300 average. It's just him, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays. 3,000 hits, 500 homers, plus multiple home run titles and batting titles. It's just him and Aaron. I mean, he's an incredible company. And you touched on this. He's more than a guy who can hit. He's a genius. He is a hitting genius. And, you know, I was talking a couple weeks ago uh, to a a high-ranking front office kind of guy from another American League team. And he told me, you know, they when they face him, they know what he's up to, and they can't stop it. They they know he's going to do certain things to set up the pitcher, set up the catcher, to get that pitch he wants. And then in a big spot, when he gets it, he does whatever he needs to do with it. And this guy was telling me that sometimes he'll watch this, then he'll walk through the clubhouse. He'll see the pitcher who just gave up that big hit to Miggy, and he'll laugh and he'll say to him, you fell for it <laughs> because we all we see it all the time. I, I even did a story on this a few years back. I was still at ESPN and the premise for the story was this. 
You know all those people who think RBIs are a meaningless stat? <laughs> Here is my response. Watch Miguel Cabrera. So I talked to him, Doug, and he laid out for me exactly how he does this, how he moves around in the box so he can get a certain pitch, or he will take a pitch or miss a pitch and look fooled because he wants them to throw that <laughs> pitch again, or he'll look pull-happy because he wants to move the defense a little bit. And then when he gets to the plate in a situation where he has a chance to drive in a run, uh, he'll size up the field, he'll see what the defense is giving him, and then he will just hit it where they're not playing him. Just flick it through that hole on the right side, up the middle, uh, hit it in the upper deck, left field, right field, doesn't matter. He he could, I, I, I honestly felt like he was one of the few hitters I've ever watched who knew what was about to happen before it happened and could do whatever he wanted to do, whatever he needed to do. And when, so he, when he told me all this, I thought, you know, there's a lot of people in baseball who just kind of blow smoke and tell you stuff. I don't think any of that was him just exaggerating or blowing smoke. Do you? No. He, he really and it was a it was a calm confidence almost like a humorous confidence like that's how he was it was like yeah I, I know what you're doing and look there's times you know what the pitcher's trying to do to you it doesn't mean you could execute it or hit it I mean that's the difference like he he could do it and I I think of it as someone like Andre Agassi right a great return of serve tennis player that's what he was like <laughs> because think about tennis when you play you could hit the ball anywhere you want you might miss wide or whatever but you can always direct the ball. That that was him. It was like he had a tennis racket and could decide where he wanted to hit the ball. And you were just at his mercy and he was running you all over the court. And and um and it's just not that easy and it takes a certain <laughs> level of like you said genius. And he 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 was it. He he's un unbelievable. Yeah. Um you know, we should really think about who's going to be next to 3000 cuz nobody none of the guys who are up above 2,000 hits are ever going to get there. Uh, Stephen Nesbitt wrote a great piece about why this is uh, in The Athletic. Uh, I laughed out loud when I read him drop Wander Franco's name uh, in the <laughs> right. story. Like and then it, uh, yesterday on Ken Rosenthal's Mailbag Podcast, he picked Wander Franco as the next 3,000 hit guy. Doug, he's 29 hit, 2,900 hits away. I, I know what that tells me. I'm sure it tells you. It's never been harder to get a hit. And Doug, I know a guy we can ask about this, and he's coming right up. All right, Doug, uh, these people have heard what we think about Miguel Cabrero. What do you say we ask a guy who has known him longer than just about anyone that I know? Um, it's Dave Dombrowski, president of Baseball Ops for the Phillies, but also, once upon a time, GM of the Marlins when they signed Miggy at, I think it was 16 years old. Uh, Dave, is that accurate? 16 years old when Miguel Cabrera signed? 16 years old. Um, that's right. That's when I first met him. I give a lot of credit to the individuals, of course, signed them. people like Louis Alhawa and Miguel Garcia at that point and Al Avila. But um, I got a chance to see him because they brought him to the ballpark after we signed him. And 
I, at that point, I think it was Joe Robbie Stadium, whatever it may be called now. <laughs> right. uh, and, it, and it was one of those where yeah, at that age, you were absolutely shocked because you put on a hitting display all over the ballpark and you thought, wow, now I know why we spent this type of money to sign this guy. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you about that. So you did not see him actually in Maracay in Venezuela, right? But you do remember the first time you ever saw Miguel Cabrera swing a bat? Really like to hear about what you remember from that. Sure. That was the workout that he had there when he came to the ballpark uh, after we had signed him. And at that time, it was difficult. Uh, we had such good people that were scouting for us, and they had developed a relationship with him throughout the time period. So it really didn't necessitate me seeing him because I had a lot of confidence in those individuals. But the first time I had a chance to see him was when I was at the ballpark there. And um, again, Joe Robbie Stadium, and he was in a position where it was like, wow. I mean, first you see his pictures now. He was not the same guy size-wise as far as his weight right. is concerned. He was thin, but the ball jumped off his bat. He made the ballpark. He hit the ball out of the ballpark as a 16-year-old. He hit the ball over the ballpark, so you could see that he was somebody special combined with everything everybody had said. You just don't see people do what he did at a young age like that. And you know what? That's still true. <laughs> um, it is. Yes, it is. I, 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 I do want to ask you about your current team, the Phillies, obviously. But first, um, I'm just curious what your emotions were when, I'm guessing you watched Miguel Cabrera get that 3,000th hit over the weekend. Uh, since you've been such a big part of his journey, uh, it had to be something special for you. It was. It's like one of those moments, and I'm sure that you've shared this yourselves, Doug, um, being around with the players and Jason, is that it gives you that little um, bit of tingle down your arm where you feel that, that it was just really an exciting moment to watch him achieve that, see everybody run onto the field, um, seeing them from day one, knowing them from day one. And, and I've had a close relationship with them throughout the years, of course, being with the Tigers all those years. But even afterwards, we text back and forth every so often. And somebody will say, hey, Miguel said to say hi, or Miguel said this. So it was really a special feeling, not only for me, but really it was a family gathering for myself because everybody got to know him back in Detroit when we were there. Um, my wife, Carrie, of course, she knows him and knew the family member. We had a suite in Comerica Park and down the left field line. And we use it every so often and contribute to charities other days. And Miguel's was right next to ours. So his wife, his mother, his kids would be in there all the time as agent Diego Benz at that point. And they would, so they got to know my family very well. My son Landon, I still get a kick out of. He's a senior at the Wake Forest right now, but he used to go to the ballpark real early with me in Lakeland during spring training. And it was funny because Miggy loved kids. So I'd be sitting up in my office and, and I'd see Miggy and my son Landon running sprints together down the right field line because Miggy would bring him out there and say, come on, Landon, you're coming with me. So that and my daughter, Bob. So it was a real family thing for us, too, and a lot of um, sentimental type of feelings for the whole family. Well, I want to ask you about how Miguel Cabrera ever got to Detroit because this is a really cool piece in The Athletic uh, by Cody Stavenhagen. Looking back, at the trade that brought him to Detroit. It was the winter meetings, December of 2007, when you made that deal. And I, I know you've made a lot of trades, but looking back on the impact of that trade, on, on the guy you traded for and the franchise, Dave, do you think it's possible that ranks as the biggest trade of your career? 
Well, I would think it has to. I mean, when you look at, um, I've been fortunate to be in a position where I've been around a lot of Hall of Fame players throughout my career. That's what happens when you're in the game for a long time. So you get older, you're around a lot of those type of guys. But <laughs> I would think so. I mean, in Miguel's case, um, acquiring him for the organization, what he has, how he's performed, what he did for the franchise. I mean, we were good for a lot of years when he was there. Um, he was worth the price of admission. I, I think the only part that breaks my heart in one sense is that when you look at those Detroit clubs we had with Miguel and Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer, I mean, to me, three definite Hall of Famers that we never won the world championship. Um, we got to the to the World Series a couple of times, but didn't end up winning it. And a Hall of Fame manager in Jim Leland. So you're in a position where, um, but the, the acquisition of him how we went about doing it, what he did for the franchise, the joy he brought to the city, what he did uh, for the whole organization. I would have to say that would be the biggest trade that I've ever made. Yeah, I'll, I'll let jump, Doug jump in here in a second. But that just to recap, that trade was Miguel Cabrera and Dontrell Willis coming to Detroit for Andrew Miller and Cameron Maben, who both were playing in the big leagues last year, by the way, <laughs> and then three other players. Uh, and one of the really fun parts of Cody's story was you talking about how nervous you were that word of that might get out and then how emotional it was in your suite when you made the deal. What do you remember about how hard your heart was beating <laughs> at the time? Well, we were all beating hard. I mean, our, <laughs> well, and, and it was unusual without going the whole story because you read it, but on that Sunday night when we got to the winter meetings, all of a sudden, the doors opened again for us with the possibility of acquiring Miguel because we thought he was going to be traded to the Angels at that point. So they asked us if we were interested. We said yes. On Monday, they called us then back with the names that they would take in the trade. Um, and a lot of times, as you know, you, you give them this guy for that guy. We knew the real two keys to the deal were Miller and Maven. And we liked the, the four other players, by all means. But it was a situation where so we don't want to mess this one up. So let's not give them any reason to, yeah, maybe we'd prefer to give this guy up versus that guy, but let's not dicker with the names because we don't want this one to fall apart. Mm -hmm. So once we ended up making an agreement to the deal, then there's still that part of everybody passing physicals. And I remember at the time, I knew people still in the Miami organization who were very close to me throughout the years because they, they were from over there. And and so it was a situation where when the deal was was made, it took a lot longer to pass the physicals than normally would be the case. And you know, Maven and Miller, I mean, there was some minor things wrong with them, but we knew they were nothing major. And but you're when you're sitting there, you're, thinking, you're gonna get Miguel Cabrera and it's dragging on and on. You're starting to say, well, let's not, you know, what's going on here? And I remember some of our people talked to their individuals in the organization. They said, Hey, we were just going very thorough. We just need to make sure of this. So there, there was some anxiety that was at that time period because you don't want to see it fall apart. And then the same thing could happen to us that maybe happened with the Angels or another organization. So you're hoping somebody else doesn't jump in at that time. So we never left our suite for like two straight <laughs> days. I mean, I, I we're in our room, we'd say, okay, you go right back and go to your bedroom and go to sleep and come back here the next day. We don't want you intermingling with anybody. So everybody was just on, on on eggshells at that point. And then all of a sudden, when uh, we finally got the clearance of the trade, 
I mean, the emotions were just tremendous. Everybody's jumping up and high-fiving everybody. And you conclude Jim Leland in doing that even. So, I mean, you could just feel <laughs> what the feelings were and how excited we were to, to get that one done. Well, and, and Dave, you know, given that he's been part of your professional career for so long, you see the maturation of a person, a maturation of a player. Uh, you know, what did you see over the years as Miguel grew into the man and the hitter he became to get 3,000 hit over that time? Well, I think, like you said, it's more the development of the person himself because the, the ability was, was always there. And even as a youngster, he used the opposite field. As we know, he was just such a mature hitter and winning triple crown at a young age and winning batting titles. But you could see the maturity as an individual. Yeah. Here you are, you're a young guy. We've all seen it coming into the big leagues. A lot of emotion, a lot of pressure, a lot of money that you're in your plate. And you're in a position where uh, all type of temptations in life, right? So um, I'd say Miguel was like a lot of youngsters at that point. And so as time went on and as time grew, um, he dealt with some of his issues and uh, that he needed to do in order to, to provide the longevity in his career. And so, I mean, I saw his children the other day. I hadn't seen him for a while. So I'm on television and I was like shook my head saying, I can't believe those are the youngsters that were running around when I last saw him and good looking, you know, young kids. And so there was really a growth of him as a person. And so that I really pay a lot of tip my cap to him. And I mean, who am I to say that I'm proud of him because right. I'm just, I'm a general manager with another team, but I am proud of him. I'm proud of him the way he's handled himself, the way he's grown. He's always was a great teammate was always very supportive and also it was never about him it was always about the team or other players but that's continued to to grow so just really as proud of him as you could possibly be you know well, dave you know and, uh, dave i just think is there uh, are there any players in particular that spoke on miguel's behalf whether it's either acquiring him or how he mentored them within your organization well, not as when we acquired him because we had that type of uh, information ourselves because we had known him so well. But as far as being in a position where mentoring them, there were numerous. And I think really he did it in a quiet fashion. I'm, and, I, and I laugh because I read the article that you were talking about and they were telling the story where I guess he opened his whatever he was carrying, a little purse or whatever it was. And Candelaria was watching him and and he goes in there and there's like all money that's just yeah. in there, right? I mean, dollar bill after dollar bill. And I guess everybody's laughing. And uh, Miguel looks over him and says, there's a lot of money to be made hitting the ball the right field. <laughs> so that That's the type of things he would do. But you, you worry, you really saw the effect. Now, when he came up, you had people we had already with the organization, say Victor Martinez, who was there. And we all, and Maglio had preceded him and been in a position. So they were hitters that used to hold field. Now, he already had done that, but you could see it would continue to build on it. But what I really noticed is that when we had young players come up in the organization or even veteran players that we acquired, they adjusted to what he did. So when he was taking batting practice and he uses the whole field and he's hitting that ball to right field, of course, he could hit it further to right field than others could. He was like a left-handed pull hitter um, when he would hit the ball to right field. But you all of a sudden see a Nick Castellanos come up. Well, that's how Castellanos approached his hitting, and he still continues to do so. I think, for me, the best example, too, from a, a star player coming over 
we acquired Cespedes at the one time. And Cespedes was always a pull hitter, great, um, you know, tremendous talent. But when he got to us, it, he was a pull hitter. But then all of a sudden, he watched Miguel, and he started using the whole field for the first time in, in his professional career. And he put up some tremendous numbers for us at that time. So there was an event. Of course, Cespedes then went on, signed with the, you know, got traded and ended up signing a long-term contract. But um, you could see that that type of effect was there all the time because just how Miguel handled himself. Dave, you're also the guy who signed Miguel Cabrera to his current contract. Um, okay, if, I have, if I've done the math correctly, uh, there were two seasons left on the old deal, which meant you were guaranteeing him $292 million over 10 years. He was a couple weeks away from turning 31 at the time. It was the largest contract in dollars in history at the time. And because this is what goes with your profession, people criticized that contract then. They still talk about it now. But I, I remember talking to you about it then. And I remember you telling me when you have players like Miguel Cabrera, you don't let them leave. So, Dave, for people who don't always see it that way, I'd love to have you explain why you believe that when clearly there are people in your job who don't think that way. Well, I think there's a couple of factors there in that regard. First of all, you keep star talent, right? You don't want to lose star talents if you can't. I believe that you win with star players. I mean, you can build around it, but you need stars. That was one thing. Um, the second thing was, the closer they get to that free agency, then you know that somebody else may have a, the ability to lure them away from you. And we did not want to lose them. And I think it also points to you need to be aware as a person in my position, the organization in which you work, the owner in which you work. Um, and we were in a position in Detroit that Mike Gillich, who was our owner at that time, um, he believed in star players. I mean, that was he, he was on the same page. I mean, that we did what we could to keep those players. And it was important to him. I mean, it's like when we ended up losing Victor Martinez the one year when he tore up his knee, or we could have replaced him with some other young players per se, but he wasn't interested in getting young players or, or guys that could platoon. He was interested in getting Prince Fielder, you know, at that point. So that's how he operated. And he did it with hockey. Look at the hot, great teams that Detroit Red Wings had at that point. And so basically when we got to those negotiations, it was a lot of money. We knew that. But it was also a situation where we feared that we could lose him down the road because we wouldn't be able to match what others were going to do. And I remember Mike Gillich's exact quote was when we got down to it, saying, we're pushing this. I'm not sure that we want to go. I'm not sure how we'll be at the end of the contract. We think he'll still be able to hit. And he's still hitting. He's not the same hitter. Of course, he was. But he said his quote was, when he goes in the Hall of Fame, I want him to be wearing a Detroit Tigers hat. And so that's really what our thought process was behind it. So it was there because I, I tell you, and it's funny when, you, when I say that, yeah, that's philosophically what I believe in. But anybody that thinks I have the, the ability to make a decision of $300 million, <laughs> they don't really understand how the position works. You need to be in a position with that with your owner that you share the same beliefs. And so some some owners don't believe in that some and I understand it because there will be declining value as the player gets older. We thought his value would decline less than others at up to 35, 36 years old because he was so talented and he would still hit. But 
they're in a he's in a position saying, you know what, I'm willing to do that in order to keep Miguel Cabrera, where somebody else may not. And so you work hand in hand with that individual making those decisions. Well, that sounds like a good segue to talk about the team that you run now. Um, you, you know, Dave, there was so much buzz uh, this spring about the lineup that the Phillies put together. You signed Kyle Schwarber this swing, this spring, signed Nick Castellanos this spring. Here we are. It's the last week of April. Um, your lineup has scored one run or none five times already. Um, only two teams in baseball have had more games like that. Curious what your view is of your team and especially why your lineup hasn't hit more consistently so far. Well, it's a great question. I wish I uh, I had the total answer because if we did, then you would basically make sure you changed it, right? So, But I, I do think from an offensive perspective, um, I, I think we're better than this. I just think that usually you turn over a bubble gum card and most guys get to that point where they reach those stages. But when you look at the top of our order, actually, when you go to the seven, eight, which have been Bohm and Camargo, they've been two of our better hitters at this point. So the top six guys in the lineup, most of them, other than Schwarber, perhaps their averages are okay, but we really just haven't produced uh, on a regular basis. And, and part of it, I'm not sure if they're trying to do too much because of what, who they are. Um, we've had a hard time driving in runs when we get on base. And so really we just need to snap out of this because I know we're a better hitting club than this. And if we're not, then shame on me for thinking we are, but it's a situation where I just think we have too many good hitters. Schwarber, I think is a little bit different than the other, the other five. I mean, he's the one guy that's pretty much a pull hitter. Um, the other five will use the other side of the field. Hoskins has not been doing that. He just started the first couple of games, hit the ball the other way, but when they get all of them are hitting the best, they're using the whole field. Schwarber, I think, probably is more of the pull guy. And he started off real slowly in April last year, too. But um, we're, we're just not performing up to our capabilities so far, and we need to shake out of it. You know, I heard someone make a really interesting point uh, about your team last week. Uh, as I'm sure you've noticed, it seems like for whatever reason, the baseball isn't carrying this year. Don't know if it's because of the humidor that's now in every park or because the ball isn't as lively, maybe a little of both. But do you think that that could have an outside effect on a team like yours, which is basically built to thump its way to October? Well, I guess it could, but I have not seen that ourselves. Um, so there's not I, – I can't tell you if there's a ball that I've seen us hit off the batter's – off the bat where I'd say, geez, that ball's out of here and it falls short. Now we always say that in April anyway, the home runs don't really jump out normally in the cooler weather. Um, but we haven't had many of those type balls. Our biggest thing is, which is surprising. If you look, we've had a lot of, we, we rank among the highest teams with hard hit balls. We're in the top five. We were until last night. So we, we hit the ball hard. The one thing we haven't done very much is our fine gaps. And I think part of that is the improved defensive um, shifting that they have going on, even in the outfield where people are, are moving at that point. But we still have hit some balls pretty hard. We just haven't found the gaps. But I haven't found as much of, oh, the guys crushed the ball, and I think it's going out. Um, I can't really even tell you. Probably last night in the ninth inning when Bohm hit that ball um, for the last out of the game, that was probably the, the closest I've come thinking, well, that ball, that has a chance to get out of here. But, you know, it's, it's late in the game. It's 
colder. It's the opposite way. I can't say for sure I thought that was a home run. I think it was more my heart pulling for it than it was <laughs> necessarily my brain thinking, oh, yeah, for sure it's going out. Well, Dave, you know, part of you know your role often goes up against sort of the trends of where the industry is going. You know, we, we, much of that got exposed in negotiations and trying to figure out uh, the analytic side of how to build a team. I mean, how do you balance the sort of trends of where the game is going and then you're setting the tone? Uh, for example, this team is constructed around much more on the offensive side, not as much defense, but still having the confidence that enough pitching, enough execution, enough offense will will allow you to win. Uh, how do you reconcile those those two uh, directions? Well, it's a great question. And, and I think the way to, do it, to look at it is, is that First of all, I've always been an advocate as much information as you can possibly receive is beneficial. So you really look at all the information that you possibly receive. Um, but I think you also be in a position you, you use your own instincts and you balance that with the scouting information you get and the analytical information that you get. I think you also need to be cognizant. Uh, somebody asked me, they asked, how do you build a club, right? What's your, okay. Let's start with the ideal club, right? Well, you've got gold glove fielder at every position. You've got uh, guys who can run. Um, they can swing the bats. Um, you've got 20 game winners everywhere that can pitch 200 innings and you got outstanding people in your bullpen. Okay, that's not going to happen. So now where do we go from there? And I think you have to be cognizant of the personnel that you have when you're in a situation. So you combine all the information that you possibly have like, for example, I would not have anticipated with the club that we have to be a real good defensive club. But I think if you catch the ball and make routine plays, you can be a good enough defensive club. And surprisingly, here we are, 16 games, 6 and 10. We have been an adequate defensive club. We had really a bad game. The one that Bohm had three errors, but he shook it off. But we have really made, caught the ball in a way, in a fashion that I would think we would. The problem is we haven't hit enough. So that's where you try to balance all of that information that you possibly can. In addition to having good hitters, I think you support them with their quality hitting coach, which we have in Kevin Long. Right now, it just hasn't all really come together for us. But I think you balance all of that information all the time. And for example, getting away from the offensive part of it, the starting pitching, which I'm always an advocate of starting pitching. I'm a big starting pitching person, always have been throughout my career. Well, I understand this spring with Wheeler, Eflin, Suarez, them in particular being behind because they're still in spring training mode. It's nobody's fault. I mean, Wheeler's a little stiff coming in in the wintertime, but got the flu the first week. Eflin had surgery. Suarez had visa problems. So you, you have to factor all those type of things in. So I think you build your club and, and what you think gives you the best chance. I mean, there's the traditional way of, okay, this is the way you try to put everything together. And then you balance it with what the personnel that you, you have with your club. Dave, I want to ask you a little bit about Bryce Harper. Um, if if I've calculated this correctly, um, you've had three MVPs play for you in your career. I might be missing somebody, but Miguel Cabrera, Mookie Betts, and Bryce Harper. Uh, you saw Bryce from afar for a long time. Now that you've been around him for a couple of years, how does reality match your perception of that guy from afar? Well, he, I always thought he was very talented. 
you know, from afar. And then, of course, you don't have to be in baseball to know that. Some fans can tell you those things. So you're very talented. Um, he continues to have tremendous talents. I think perhaps what it's changed, I never really realized um, until being around him, the real knowledge he has for the game of baseball and playing the game and his instincts about players and his desire to win and what it takes to win. Those are things that you learn about an individual once you're here. He, of course, when he was younger, I'd say he was more flamboyant, I guess is the way to say it. He's not quite that. He still plays the game with the flair. I mean, he's the only guy we have that they boo every time he goes into another stadium. <laughs> and play. Um, that comes with the territory in his situation. But um, uh, being around him, the talent matches, uh, the personality. I mean, he's a very he's a family-oriented individual. Um married with two you know, wonderful children close with his parents and he's got a good group of close friends. So seeing him from afar, I would not necessarily have painted that same picture with him because of the flamboyant nature, but that's who he is. Yeah, and, and when you have someone like Bryce Harper, you talked about like building a team around what the pieces you already have. So what has been the transition of working with someone like Bryce and then coming in and you know, making moves around him. For example, bringing in Castellanos, bringing in Schwarber. I mean, is there how much conversation? I guess is there with players that are established star players. Well, I've always been in a situation where um, players that we have in your team. You asked earlier about Miguel, and when I was at Boston, we had Pedroia and Ortiz be with us, and um, it's a situation. I've always um, listened to and are open to players' recommendations because. And they have a feel of players and how they play. They also know their abilities, not only abilities, but a lot of times their makeup, how they would deal with being in Philadelphia, just specifically being in Boston. So I, I always listen to what they, they have to say. I, I'm open to it. Um, I can't say they make the final decision you know, <laughs> by any but it would be like there. I mean, I listen to our scouts. I listen to, you know, very our analytical people. Of course, listen to, our, to Joe and the staff members that we have. So I think there's mo as much information as you possibly can have. And so Bryce, um, he's I'm open to his opinions when he hasn't. But I'd be this, the same if it was, uh, um, let's just say Zach Wheeler talking to me about a pitcher, or if it was JT Riemulto talking about somebody. And I've listened to JT a time. So um, I'm very open to that regard. I don't take it personal. I think it's the more information you can have, the better. Because a lot of times, one of the keys to winning is the, the, the makeup of your players and, and what they bring. And I do think there are some players that in the city of Philadelphia, the city of Boston, they're, they're not meant to play here. They're, they're just not. I mean, the fans are great. They're passionate, fantastic. But hey, here, the one difference that I've noticed compared to any other place I've ever been, they boo their pl home players more quickly than anywhere else. <laughs> But it's a you know it's a passion. It's just the way they are. That's the way they've grown up. Well, some guys can't handle that. I, I hate to say it. They just they can't. So um, now they also love you. Look what happened with Bohm, right? I mean, they just they've embraced him after that situation. But I think players will know that, and people that are that are knowledgeable. So a guy like Bryce or JT, they'll have a pulse of players that may fit in here or may not fit in here. So what was it about Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos that made you think they can handle this? 
Well, there are two guys. I mean, first, they've been around the game for a long time. Schwarber is a tough son of a gun. I've been known that for a long time. I mean, he's won everywhere he's gone. That's why I got a feeling that uh, this will shake out for us as time goes on. He's also one of the, the few guys that, in doing your homework, that he is a guy that will speak up to his teammates. So he is not afraid to express like, hey, let's get it in gear, guys. Let's we need and we we needed somebody like that here. We have a lot very a lot of talented players, but we also need to be in a position where we learn need to learn how to win. And I think Schwarber has done that successfully. Now I know it doesn't look like it so far this year when we're doing this interview, but I think he brings that to the table. He's in, he's of course you gotta be talented, and he's a very talented individual too. But I thought that was really important for him. And Castellanos is very similar. I mean, he's a he's a gritty guy. He gets his uniform dirty. He's very straightforward. He busts his tail day in and day out. And they're tough guys, so they're not afraid to approach problems day in and day out, nor say things to their teammates uh, in a in a not only a positive way, but hey, let's pick it up, guys. And I think that's really important for us with our ball club. I think over the long haul that that will show show up for us. But um, those were really the, the reasons why those guys were so important. Uh, boy, this time's going by way too fast, but I didn't want to not get to this. Uh, Kyle Schwarber also was not afraid to speak up Sunday night about <laughs> his favorite home plate umpire. <laughs> and that would be Angel Hernandez. And here's what I thought was interesting. Afterwards, Joe Girardi said he would be in favor of bringing the electronic strike zone to the big leagues. And Dave, like I know you have seen that in action in the minors. You've seen it in the fall league. You might even have seen uh, that challenge system that's being used in some of the Florida State League parks this year because Clearwater is one of those parks. Would you like to see baseball use technology in any form to call balls and strikes? Uh, Yes, I would. Now, when I say that, I think it needs to be perfected. I have not seen the challenge system yet this year in the Florida State League. I did see it last year, um, and the system was not perfected at that time. There were too many pitches that you could tell were not strikes, and and there were a lot of complaints, and the, the system was delayed in making calls and was very uh, created some uncomfortable situations for hitters and umpires, I think, at that particular time. But I think it's only a matter of time until they perfect the system. And when they do, yes, I, I think it would be good. And I think when you go back, just think the instant replay aspect of it before every a lot of people were against it, I always thought it was good. And I think part of it was even in talking to umpires throughout the year, they're trying, they're all trying, right? I mean, they're, they're doing the best they possibly can. The game moves at a very fast pace. These are great athletes. And when you look at falls and strikes, you got guys throwing 100 miles an hour and you're trying to, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard job. And what I did see with some of the, and I'll go back to um, my own Jim Joyce with the Armando Galarraga situation there, where the perfect. And I knew Jim Joyce, my first year in baseball in 1978, Jim Joyce was a minor league umpire working our spring training with the Chicago White Sox. So I got to know him. I used to give him his meal money. And and so I always... (laughs) I knew him for years. Tremendous umpire, right? I mean, really a good umpire, developed into a tremendous big league umpire. He missed a call. He didn't do it purposely, of course. Whatever happened, he missed the call. And after the game, he was heartbroken. He was in tears. This guy was just felt awful. 
And I've seen that with other umpires too. And so you take that out of that by having an instant replay. And I'm sure that some of these guys, after a game, they've made some bad calls at a critical time and they know they're trying their hardest and they don't want to make those calls. And so for me, it takes it out of their hands at that point. And I think it's good for the game of baseball. And I think it's good for the umpires too. You know, I think both of you guys know I'm all in on using technology in whatever ways baseball can to make the game better, make the calls more accurate. And you know, it's funny though. I, I think about Sunday night and the the memory that people are going to have of that game is Kyle Schwarber and the emotion of that moment. Uh, and it like it stems from the human element. I think we should try to get the calls right, but I do worry about taking the, the humanity out of the game. How do we balance that? Yeah, it's a great it's a great point. And I mean, I even you get into some of the days. I mean, you guys were there. We don't see it anymore. These. I'm not saying they're right, but when you see some of the managers explode and yell at the umpires and you have these things, I think fans in general, they like those type of things, you know, at that point. So it is in an entertainment aspect of it. So you weigh the entertainment versus getting the call right. Um, hopefully we can entertain them in other ways that they enjoy it. But I agree with you. That, it, that does take some of the human element, takes away some of that real emotion at that particular time. But you know, I don't know that some of those calls were so close anyway. I mean, it's just so, you know, some of those are just so, so close. Now, Schwarber's got a great eye. It's apparent that that was a ball. But, and so maybe he would have exploded anyway. You know, there was an automatic strike zone at that automatic strike zone. I agree. I don't know. I hope that we do find a balance. I, I'm going to guess that uh, Sunday night you would have voted for getting the call right over the entertainment value. <laughs> Just guess. Yes, you're right. Yes. You're right. But, you know, I, I read today in the paper, the long explanation, and, and it was not a good night uh, behind the plate for the umpire, you know, for Angel. But it was one of those that they said they clearly missed nine calls against us mm-hmm. and seven calls against the Brewers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So pretty, I mean, it's pretty even, you know, now that I'm not hitting like Doug Landville would be able to message you up, but you know, the reality is that, Hey, probably if we'd have scored the one run, you'd have heard the, the brewers complain, you know, rather than us. But the reality, it was bad from both ends of it. Well, Dave, I mean, I was, I was on that call and I saw the, and I think the thing that was different is, it, it was the called third strike. I, I think it was like five to one against the Phillies. I think that yes, was the, I think it was something like that. And um, it, one interesting, uh, just these are like kind of a quick tech question, but Eduardo Perez, <laughs> I, you know, uh, Perez, I should call him. I always like, I, I have to go back to his original roots. <laughs> Eduardo Perez, his, he made a point about pitch com. And one thing he said is, what if you gave a pitch comp to the umpire, the home plate? Because part of it has to be, I mean, Josh Hader's on the mound. He's throwing 100 from the side. He has a slider. It would help the umpires if they knew what was coming. Now, I know they, they would, you have to make sure they don't set up to give it away. Yeah. But I was just curious. It's an idea he mentioned. So I, I figured, like, what would you think about that if the umpires actually knew what pitch? I'm sure that would help them. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that discussion, um, and, and I, actually there's a lot to be said that's probably a positive in that regard. Um, I, I really, as long as it be, could be kept, like you said, where only they know it and nobody else knows, I think part of the problem there ends up being, though, is that 
where they really miss more pitches, it seems like to me than most, is when the locale isn't where it's supposed to be or the slider doesn't break quite the same way or you're looking for a fastball away and all of a sudden the fastball's in mm-hmm. and it's a strike. And so the umpire would be looking there, they're still having the same issue. But so there's a lot of things to work out, but I, I don't, I'm not against that by any means. I think if they could end up figuring out, it'd be a great idea. Well, one thing also, Joe Girardi mentioned in our meeting yesterday, uh, he said, with Jim Joyce, he said, I think they should go back and just call it a perfect game. And one of the things he pointed out is like the opportunity that Galarraga lost. And, you know, he said, he said he signs a picture with David Cohn of whatever, you know, perfect game, whatever Cohn did. I don't know if it was a perfect game, World Series. And he said that, that's like, you know, been a whole di- different world for him because he was part of that moment. Uh, I'm, you know, I know it's hard to be revisionist, but I am curious, like, does, you know, would it hurt anybody? It's like, okay, let's fix that. We know he was out. Let's call it a perfect game. I don't know what, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean, it, and I don't like to disagree with our manager. He's very smart. <laughs> so, um, but the only thing is, is I think probably if you went through, you'd probably find quite a few historical yeah. games that took place or that you could reverse that would change different things. That one stands out as it yeah. was, but I bet you there's other things like that too. And um, I don't know, maybe Colorado would have to give back that Corvette that, that they gave <laughs> right. the non, non-perfect game. But uh, yeah, I, I just think, you know, philosophically it sounds right and I would have no problem if they did it. But I do think then you'd probably hear other objections from others saying, yeah. well, now you need to look at this one or you need to look at that one. Because I'm I'm not looking, but I'm sure that there's other ones that you'd say took place, and the calls could easily be reversed, and they changed history of the game. Yeah. Wow. So you, you guys want to go to an alternate universe huh, where Don Dinkinger gets the call right, and I, I hate to say it, Doug, we're kind of marching into Jason's territory. Yeah. I know it's I know it's slippery slope. I know, but it's like, gosh, that Colorado was because so, it's like Jim Joyce is fantastic, you know, and you just wanted that to be right. But uh, I love this. We're going to plug all of history into the replay machine and automated ball strikes. We might have some new world champions. I can. Think- hey they can blame it all on angel hernandez that's what i know <laughs> uh, dave look I, I know you got a lot more important things to attend to in philadelphia than we ever have to attend to here so thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to visit us and come back again soon okay well i appreciate it thanks for having me good to see you guys see you thanks, soon dave. you appreciate too it. thanks so much dave Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Time for listener trivia, our way of involving you our favorite listeners in this show. Once again, we continue to pick a trivia question submitted by some lucky listener. Then we invite that lucky listener to join us on the show and attempt to stump us with the question of the week. Uh, That's gotten a lot more interesting in the last few months. uh, So we will tell you how you can do that in just a few minutes. Uh, Doug, are we in mid-season form on these yet? I can't remember. Well, we, we got a shortened spring training, so I, I think about May 3rd when they uh, reduce the <laughs> rosters, we'll be, we'll be right on target. Oh, okay, I'm looking forward to that. Um, all right, let's do this, man. Time to welcome back this week's special trivia guest star. It's Paul McCord, or as he's known on Twitter, at Bravestats. Hey, Paul, <laughs> <laughs> welcome back to Starkville. Has anything changed with the Braves since we had you on last? Uh, they um, they won this fancy piece of metal and uh, lost their star first baseman and gained a new one. A few other little things, but, you know, that about sums it up. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's funny. This makes two weeks in a row now that we've had Braves fans on in this segment. We let the last guy revel in the World Series. We're going to skip ahead. We're going to ask you how you're feeling about the Braves this year. I think I have this right. Five series that they've played since the World Series. They haven't won any of them. Um, Paul, how worried are you? How worried should Braves fans be? I'm not the worrying type. And uh, as we remember, they started off very slowly last year. Couldn't get over 500 until August. Um, And um, I just think that this year, with the Cunha coming back pretty soon, possibly sooner than they've projected since he's tearing up AAA right now, and once the pitching solidifies overall, I think they're going to be just fine. A lot of hard hit balls this this uh, this April. They just keep finding gloves. Uh, it's one of the things I keep noticing. So I'm optimistic. All right. I don't recommend that they wait till August to go over 500 this year because the Mets are going to be about yeah. 60 over by then. <laughs> There's more playoff spots, though. Just get us talking. <laughs> okay. That's true. Uh, all right. Now, even though Paul tweets at me pretty regularly, he actually emailed this question. And... We love it when people email us with the questions. Um, so we went with this question, even though it's really hard. But, uh, Paul, I want to give you a chance to read as much of your email as you think is pertinent. <laughs> Somewhere in there you should ask the question, though, okay? All right. I'll, uh, I'll just jump right to okay, it. Okay, that's a good idea. Um, all right. So um, players who collect their 3,000th hit are typically well past their prime and they no longer turn out hits the way they used to, but a small handful of them still got it. So your question, um, one member of the 3000 hit club had a 200 hit season the same year that he got his 3000, three others, not the same guy, three others of the 3000 hit club had 200 hits in a later season after that 3000 hit. So can you name them? Okay, so we're looking for four members of the 3,000 Hit Club who still had a 200-hit season in them at that age. Um, 
Yeah. First thing we're going to do is beg. <laughs> like rather than have to break down which of the four got the 200th hit in the year that he reached 3,000, can we just try to name all four? Yes, just name all four is the goal here. I just, I just wanted to name which four still had it at that time in their career. <laughs> okay. Still seems pretty impossible, but we will not let that stop us. Uh, so, hey, one of them I know. I know Pete Rose had a 200-hit season after he got to 3,000 because he did it in his first season in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if he got 200 the year he reached 3,000, but it doesn't matter anymore. Okay, yeah. we, we just negotiated that, so we got one. Um, now, I feel like we should mostly look at guys who got many more than 3,000 hits. It seems logical. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to admit to this, Paul, because we had a 3,000th hit over the weekend, that list has been flashed on many screens. So it's enabling us to cheat without actually cheating. Just going to confess <laughs> that. All right. So I haven't seen it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I cheated without meaning to cheat. Um, so I know for example, that Ty Cobb got way more than 3,000 hits, got more than 4,000 hits. Yeah, I mean, Ty's... Right? Felt like he got 200 hits every year of his career. I'm thinking he has got to be one of the guys who did this. So we have Cobb and Rose. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who are the other two? This is the hard ones. Mm -hmm. Um, Doug, I'm going to give you the names I wrote down. Okay. Uh, Jeter, although I don't think so, but he he might have, right? He got a lot of 200 hits quite a bit. Stan, Stan Musial... Yeah. Very good into his late 30s. Yeah. He's a real possibility. Mm-hmm. Hannes Wagner, he was Ooh. another, he was a 200 hit machine. Ooh. Got to think about him. Uh, you know, Roberto Clemente was still yeah. such a star, such a great player when he died tragically in that plane crash. We should think about him. Mm. Uh, Paul Molitor, maybe. Mm-hmm. Tony mm-hmm. Quinn. Ooh, uh, and the one other thing is you would think with a guy whose Twitter handle is at Brave Stats, mm. <laughs> there would be a Brave on his list. Thanks. So Henry Aaron came to mind. Um, so like we ha- I have a lot of names. I don't know what's right. If only there was someone here who had ever gotten 200 hits in a season in the major leagues. Doug, do you know anybody like that? Hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I don't think he qualifies for this list. But if we, if the threshold was like a thousand hits, you'd be I'd be right in the mix there. Right, Doug Glanville uh, had a 200 hit season, so now he gets to answer a uh, trivia question about 200 hit seasons. Doug, I'm just going to sit back and let you figure this out. Uh, well, I'm going to have to use strategy. So I'm thinking, okay, our mayor is going to have to play some audio after our answer. So it probably can't be from like 1912, you know? So, so someone has to be somewhat recent. So you got Rose, that, that could be the guy. Aaron, Cobb. I mean, those sound really good. I mean, Willie Mays, did he have a lot of hits? It seemed like he, he slowed got down. Three, he got 3,000 hits, but he was really huffing and puffing at yeah, the end. Um, Aaron, what about Musial? I mean, well, the one I'm worried about is someone like Carl Yastrzemski because no, think, no, because he he just he, did, did he walk? He didn't walk. He was just always hacktastic. Yeah, but he he barely got to three thousand. Doug, barely? if I remember this right, he like he holds still holds the record for most at bats with two twenty nine ninety nine trying to get to three thousand. Oh, that came up over the weekend because Mickey got intentionally walked. Not sure if you heard. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, I don't even know. I can't even speak to Wagner. I mean, I'm liking. 
I mean, Molitor, I mean, he was he was a hit machine. He didn't really walk yeah. that much. Uh, wow. All right. Well, I like Rose, Aaron, Cobb. I mean, I'm thinking Musial. I mean, Roberto, I just, did Roberto come out there have 200 hits that last year? I don't think so. It, no? All right. Well, I don't know. All right. I, <laughs> You're I, the 200 I, hit expert. I, I keep like, forgetting. Yeah, I should have studied this. I know Pete Rose had 200 hits. I do from that, you know, being, because I think I was 20 years later or something. Uh, yeah, I'm going to just go. Yeah, I got Rose, Aaron, Cobb, and Stan Musial. I kind of like that list. All right, we're going to let the guy know. who got 200 hits answer the 200 hit question. Then if he gets it wrong, I can blame it on him. But mm-hmm. if he gets it right, I'll say, of course he should have got it. So, <laughs> Win-win. <laughs> let, let, let's find out. Uh, Paul, is there any chance that it's Ty Cobb, Pete Rose, Henry Aaron, and Stan Musial? You got two out of the four. Now, I do like your strategy of going with the four guys with the most career hits because obviously they have to have at least 200 more than Um, 3,000. At least three of the four would have to. Um, Pete Rose, Mm -hmm. he uh, he did it the year after. Um, Let's see. I've got it. I'm going to go to a separate screen here so I can see you guys and this answer. Um, Pete Rose got 3,000 in 1978, hit 208 the next year. Then he, of course, carried on for several more years. Ty Cobb got his 3,000th in 1921. Then he got 211 in 1922. Mm. 211 again in 1924. So, Jason, we're right about that. Okay, so the two that I named, I went two for two. How about the (laughs) other two names? Two 4,000 hit guys. Of course, they had hit 200 more at some point because they kept going and going. Um, The next one, I think you set him and crossed him off. (laughs) Derek Jeter got his 3,011 and 216 the very next year before slowing down. That's cool. And then um, instead of a Braves connection, uh, my first name is Paul. Well, my middle name is Paul. Uh, Paul Molitor Uh, was one of my favorites uh, growing up uh, when I first got into baseball. 225 hits in 1996. That was the same year he reached 3,000. He was, I believe, 211 away, maybe 213 away when that season began. And he just kept hitting the baseball. And uh, one of my favorite tidbits and why it really stuck with me, uh, one, I was 13, so it was perfect age for it, but he was the first one ever to hit a triple for his 3,000 hit. Mm. All right, well, so. That's really cool. Yeah, very Paul cool. Paul Molitor, yeah, what a hitter. Wow. Yep. 220, my goodness. Yeah, you know. That was my uh, rookie year, too. You know, it was oh, Wade Boggs' 3,000th hit that enabled you to meet Tyra Banks, but that well, we digress. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, uh, all right, so... The first one to be a homer. Yeah, now I... That's exactly right. That's why. We're not going to tell that story now. <laughs> I remember that story from a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. It comes up a lot, but we're not going to tell it here. Um, all right, so let's recap. The two I guessed were right. <laughs> the other two we talked ourselves out of, which is how it works. But you know what? Yeah. Like th- this was this was really a hard one. Uh, it's always hard to get a question with four answers and so many choices. Um, on the other hand, we've gotten four out of our last five wrong now, and I'm not even counting mm-hmm. the one you flubbed up as your as a solo act. So, yeah, no Doug, problem. is it time to panic here in the streets of Starkville? No, not no, no, not yet. Remember, the Braves were under 500 into August, <laughs> so we we're good. <laughs> Okay, we are good. Let's go with that. Uh, One thing I knew this week, uh, with any question about 3,000 hits, we were providing the mayor of Starkville, Mayor Tim McMaster, with spectacular material for some play-by-play clip involving this question. 
So Tim, I cannot wait to hear what you've got in store. So I listened to all three that could be found. Ty Cobb's audio, uh, could, <laughs> couldn't find that one on YouTube. A little but, uh, so I listened to Jeter, I listened to Molitor, um, and I listened to Pete Rose. And in the end, I decided to go with the guy who got the 200 hits in that season. Plus, as Paul mentioned, it's the only triple for hit number 3,000 at that time. Ichiro has since done it. So here is Paul Molitor from 1996. To right center field, Myers and Nunley chase it. Myers, the ball drops. Molitor has his 3,000th hit, and he's chugging for third. And he's in with a triple. Paul Molitor becomes the 21st member of baseball's 3,000 hit club. St. Paul, you've got two members in the 3,000 hit club. Dave Winfield and now Paul Molitor. <laughs> That's a really good call. They, yeah, they didn't. Trouble. They didn't have the Dusty Fields Amerikai to work with, <laughs> but got St. Paul in there. <laughs> very well done, uh, Paul. That was a very, very good question, man. Uh, I'm so glad we could get you back. Be sure to visit us again sometime in Starkville. Okay. I will be glad to. Thanks for having me on. Strange but true. Doug, I love that Strange But True intro, man. It's so good. It's like a little eerie, you know? So, um, once again, baseball continues to furnish us with so much material for this segment. You know, some week, I, we should do like a whole Strange But True show. We could do it, Doug. <laughs> because yeah, Halloween. Maybe Halloween. Yeah. Well, Halloween's a little tough because it's the middle <laughs> of the World Series, but... I know what you got in mind here. Uh, you know, Saturday, the entire sport turned into a huge Strange But True segment. It felt like the Cubs beat the Pirates 21 to nothing. The Rays threw nine hitless innings against the Red Sox, but it wasn't a no-hitter. There was that Marlins-Braves game where both teams hit home runs on the first pitch of the game. It's a Doug Glanville trick. And I'm not even counting the 3,000th hit. So like, what should we do with this segment? So many choices. But I think we've got to do 21 nothing because you were texting me about the 21 nothing game while it was happening and why you were calling a whole nother game in a whole nother city. So should we just start there? Uh, it was too important. I had, I had to get that in there. <laughs> yeah. It's our kind of game. So l listen, I, I bet you think 21 nothing is a football score, right? Ha ha ha. Guess what? How many 21 nothing games you think there were in the NFL all of last season? It's got to be zero or 21. <laughs> no, no, it's zero. There hasn't been a 21 nothing game in the NFL since 2118. I'm sorry, since 2018. Uh. Also, I bet you think 21 nothing is a bear score and not a Cubs score, right? <laughs> Would make sense for sure. It would, but wrong again. <laughs> so the last time the Bears won a twenty-one to nothing game was January of nineteen eighty-six. This was the Bears of Ditka oh, beating yeah. the Giants in the playoffs that year, twenty-one nothing. So Doug, you know what that means? It means the Cubs have more twenty-one to nothing wins in the last thirty-five years than. Da Bears. So I got to ask you, have you ever won a 21-0 game, Doug, even at Wrigley? Uh, no, that 
Nope, can't say that. <laughs> 21 nothing. What a drubbing. I, I mean, trying to think. I don't know what kind of lopsided shutouts have been part of. I, I cannot imagine 21 nothing. That just, that's just destruction. That's just destruction. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more there. Look for it in this week's Weird and Wild column. Uh, also have to talk about the game in Tampa Bay because that was so wild. This is Saturday. Uh, we had six Rays pitchers, no hit the Red Sox for nine innings, used the opener that day, threw a no hitter, almost had a six pitcher no hitter, except for one thing at the end of nine innings, it was still nothing to nothing. So now not only do we have to keep on playing, not only do we have a no hitter going, we have zombie runners appear (laughs) in the middle of the no hitter. And like, this is something that has terrified us. The prospect of a team losing a no hitter because the zombie runner scores. <laughs> Nobody wants that, right? Does anybody want that? Nobody wants it. No, uh, no unless it's Halloween or you know something like that. Okay. Yeah. No. No. Uh, okay, so I guess luckily that isn't what happened. Unluckily for the Rays, the Red Sox did break up the no hitter, did score two in the top of the tenth. But then, just as they were about to lose in the bottom of the 10th, we had Trevor Story make a throwing error on what should have been the last out of the game, which brought Kevin Kiermeyer to the plate. They're still down 2 nothing. He had never hit a walk-off home run ever anywhere. <laughs> and then he stepped up, Doug, and did this. Unbelievable finish is right. I was hanging on every pitch of that game. Uh, Doug, how many games do you think there have ever been in history like that? Team throws nine hitless innings, then falls behind in extras, and then wins on a walk-off in extras. I mean... You have to go with Frank Viola against Ron Darling in college. That was like one of those epic games. <laughs> no, there's never been a major league game like that. So obviously, have you ever been part of a game like that? No, I, I don't have any friends that are zombies. So no. <laughs> right. And we know you've never been part of a game like that because there has never been another game like that. But then it happened. Why did it happen? Baseball happened. <laughs> The best. It's keeping us in business, man. No doubt. Uh, Okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, We will be bringing you podcast magic just like this all season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you would like to read about all this stuff in the Athletic, now's a good time because if you go, to the athletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber, you can subscribe for just $1 a month for the next six months. What a deal. But also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. Every show, we pick the most fun listener trivia question of the week. Then that listener gets to join us right here 
and prove once again there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. So how would you do that, you ask? Well, you can do what Paul did today. You can submit that question to us via email at starkville at theathletic.com, or there is the Twitter option. And if somebody were going to tweet a trivia question at Doug Glanville, is that actually possible? It is. I'm, I'm on Instagram too, though, but at Doug Glanville, <laughs> D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Very we could ex- Yeah, we could expand this to Instagram. Yeah, we should talk about this. Yeah, send me a picture. <laughs> of your trivia question. Right. If you wanted to tweet at me, uh, or actually submit an Instagram photo of your Twitter, <laughs> of your trivia, you could do that too. I have the same handle, at Jason S T J A Y. S-O-N-S-T. There's only one thing we ask. Just hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville QS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Dave Dombrowski for joining us. Thanks to Paul McCord for the fun trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Tomorrow is Roundtable Day here on the Athletic Baseball Show. And Doug and I will see you in Starkville next Tuesday.